Please remain standing as I read our passage for today. This is from Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. We continue in the Sermon on the Mount. These are the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 21 and following. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said of those, to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders, murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word. You may be seated. I was talking to someone earlier this week and we were considering the events of 2020 and just kind of looking back at some of the things that happened recently. And my friend said that the perception of Christianity has been damaged during this past year uh, by certain events, but also by attitudes and words and actions of professing Christians. And he said that we're going to have to reintroduce Christianity to our culture. I would add that we are going to have to reintroduce Christianity to many professing Christians as well. And there's probably no better place in the Bible to do that with than the Sermon on the Mount. According to Jesus, this is what Christianity is, or as he calls it, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is describing what it is. He's telling us what matters. And so, I want to encourage you and myself to read these verses as we go through these two chapters or three chapters over the next few months. I'd like to encourage you to read these verses carefully and consider whether what Jesus teaches here matches what you believe Christianity is and how you practice it. We can rationalize all sorts of behavior. We can rationalize all sorts of things we say. But at some point, all of us, we just have to go back to Scripture and say, does it match what Jesus says? Does it match? Because if it doesn't match, don't call it Christian. It's something else. And so we have to wrestle with these things. And, and I think we're all coming from different angles to it. We all have different blind spots. We have all made mistakes. So this is a time for us to regroup, to recenter, for us to to see what matters to Jesus, what he describes as the kingdom of heaven. So first, as we started in this series, first we heard Jesus define the character of people who belong to his kingdom in the Beatitudes. He told us what it, what it means to be a Christian. He told us what it looks like to be a Christian. And so he described his kingdom as a different kind of kingdom. It's upside down, it's inside out, it's already not yet kind of kingdom. And we'll come back to that description later in the sermon. 
Then we heard Jesus define the kingdom's relationship to the world, to this world, to people around us, as salt and light. We are supposed to be distinct, different, but present. And in fact, through us, the transformation is supposed to happen in the lives of others. Now, last week, we looked at kingdom righteousness, and we learned that we are called to obey the law as fulfilled by Christ. He didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. And so it changes our relationship to the law, but we are called to obey. And in fact, the rest of the chapter, the rest of chapter 5, are examples of what these commandments of the law are and what they look like if we fulfill them in our lives. There are six specific interpretations of the law for the Christian. These are the well-known commandments that are interpreted and explained by Jesus, what they really mean for us. And so today we'll deal with thou shalt not murder, and then we'll go through other stuff, lust and love. I mean, there's all sorts of other things that Jesus explains, and he tells us this is what it means to obey my commandments. In fact, I think in verse 19 when Jesus said, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I think the commandments he's talking about are the commandments of chapter 5. He's telling us what they are. He's not leaving us in the dark. He's not just saying commandments in general. He's saying these are it. Don't be angry. Don't lust. Don't be greedy. Those are the things that we are held to as commandments of his kingdom. This is Jesus' very clear description of kingdom righteousness, that, as he said, it exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Why? Because they were only concerned with the externals. We must be concerned with the externals and the internals. Our righteousness is exceeding because we are transformed from within by his Spirit. And so the first of these commandments is about murder and anger. Now, I want us to see how straightforward and clear Jesus is when he talks about these issues. He's not being subtle. He's not nuanced. There are other passages that do that in relation to anger in Scripture. In fact, we preached on anger last year during Lent in April of 2019 about anger, and I did a lot more kind of subtle and nuanced work. So if you want to get that, you can go back to that sermon. But today, I want to stay with what Jesus is saying and how he is saying it. He's straightforward. It's right and wrong, black and white. He's he's not mincing words. This is very clear. And so anybody who reads this needs to feel the weight of what he's saying. We need to feel the urgency to obey what he's saying. And so here's our outline for this morning. Three headings. One, let's consider the king and murder. What did Jesus say about murder? Number two, let's consider the murdered king, what Jesus did in response to all our sins. And then finally, let's consider the kingdom without murder. How can we change? How can we live differently in his kingdom? Okay, so what is the king's view of murder? What did Jesus say? Verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Very clear. Very clear. Jesus tells us that he is not merely concerned 
with avoiding physical murder and violence, harming another person physically. But he's also concerned with anger and contempt that cause violence and harm to others. In Jesus' view, and we need to read this and we need to understand and we need to accept that this is what Jesus thinks, this is what he says. In Jesus' view, an angry person who has never physically hurt anyone is guilty and deserving of judgment. And a contemptuous person is deserving of hell. Is Jesus being clear? I think he's being very clear. He's not leaving room for us to explain it away, to rationalize it away. Of course, murder is wrong. But Jesus says anger is wrong too. Contempt is wrong too. Anger and contempt are what cause violence and murder. He's not... He's not content simply to point to the physical manifestations of sin. He wants to get deeper into our hearts. Because remember, the exceeding righteousness of the kingdom is both external and internal. Of course we should be concerned with murder and violence. Of course. Every Christian should be. But we also need to be concerned with anger and contempt that lead to that. Murder, according to Jesus, is anger expressed in physical violence. Anger is often rooted in contempt for others. And this kind of destructive anger places the person under the judgment of God and people. This kind of destructive anger rooted in contempt is what makes hell here now and makes people deserving of hell later. The heavenly court considers anger and contempt to be against God's law as well as murder. Now Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He's citing the sixth commandment from Exodus 20 verse 13. Everybody who heard him say that knew it, they agreed with it. But you see, Jesus hasn't come to abolish the law, so he reaffirms that. He says, this is still true. This is, this is still real. I'm still against murder. I'm not just about your heart. I'm also about your behavior. And so the hearers would have agreed with him on that. But then he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now here the temptation is for us, as I'm sure it was for people who heard him say that, is to confuse the matter by asking, but what about righteous anger? I feel like any time we talk about anger, the next sentence is, but what about the right kind of anger? But this isn't what he's talking about. So instead of answering that question, I'm going to say, don't ask that question. This is not what this is about. And by the way, our problem isn't with righteous anger. The majority of our struggle with anger is not, has nothing to do with righteousness or God's law. It's all about us. We protect ourselves. We are threatened, so we lash out in anger on others. We all struggle with unrighteous, ungodly, sinful anger. So hear what Jesus is saying and take it to heart. Don't rationalize it away. Don't argue it away as if your anger is okay. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. Anger was on that list. 
because we rationalize it away. We make excuses. We, we say, yeah, but this kind of anger is okay, or this kind of anger is not a big deal. But Jesus says, it is. If you are angry with someone close to you, says your brother, right? So that includes your sisters, that includes your spouse, that includes your children, that includes your classmates, that includes your neighbors, your friends. It says if you're angry at someone, this is a huge problem, Jesus says, and something you need to take very seriously immediately. There's urgency to what he's saying. And then Jesus moves to contempt. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. When he says insult, it literally means whoever says raka to his brother. Raka is just this expression, Aramaic expression of, of it literally means empty. It, it basically means treating somebody as a nothing, as a nobody, disregarding them, being, you know, you're having contempt on someone, you're looking down on them. Jesus says, if you do that, if you insult someone by not taking them seriously, by considering that they're just, just an empty person, there's nothing to them, they're a nobody, I don't need to worry about them, I don't need to be concerned about them. Jesus says, you can't do that. You can't treat people with this kind of contempt. And then calling someone a fool is actually worse than that. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, especially with the book of Proverbs, you know that to be called a fool was not just you stupid person. This is not what it was. Fool was a, was a figure in the wisdom literature. It was a designation of somebody who was opposed to God, somebody who was disobedient to his law, somebody whose very presence was destructive to the fabric of society that lived under the law of God. So in that culture, in Jesus' day, to call somebody a fool, what you were saying is, is that you were opposite of the faithful believer. You, were, you should be dismissed as a godless person, as a useless person, as a dangerous person to the faith and piety of the community. So these two illustrations, by not taking somebody seriously at all because you consider them to be a nothing, and then placing somebody in the category opposite of faithful believers, somebody who is dangerous to the faith, somebody who's disobedient to the law, who's a pagan, an unbeliever. These are two illustrations that show us what contempt looks like. It's considering others less than yourself, lower than yourself, less important than yourself, or even altogether unimportant, insignificant, and even dispensable. Now, was Jesus right to connect murder with anger and contempt? Let me give you my illustration from my life, and I think I've shared it before, and then let me give you a cultural illustration we all relate to, okay? I grew up in an apartment where there was literally a hole in the wall in my kitchen when I was growing up. And the story was always told that my dad, this is before I was born, and he grew up in that apartment, my dad was so angry at his father that he just punched the wall there was this hole about this big all throughout my childhood. Why we didn't fix it, I don't know. But it was always there. And I always wondered about that. Now, it wasn't hard for me to imagine that my dad did that. My dad was an angry, contemptuous person. Now, I, I'm grateful that he was not physically abusive to me. 
to my knowledge, he didn't really harm anybody physically, but he had a different strategy of expressing that anger. And it was very, very destructive. His strategy was, I'm not going to talk to somebody that offended me. He wouldn't talk to my mom for days. The legendary kind of stuff, you know, that he did. So hurtful, so destructive. Eventually, of course, it destroyed his marriage. Of course it did. It also destroyed his relationship with his kids, who, whom he treated the same way. He was angry with us, which was a lot of the time. He just would not talk to us, just ignore us. For a kid, that's very harmful, very harmful. That was my dad. So I grew up with that. No physical danger, right? No murder, no, nothing like that. But very destructive anger, very destructive contempt. And then my mom on the other side, the, mostly the recipient of that anger, she internalized all that. She absorbed that. And how did that come out? Bitterness, resentment. She was hurt on the inside. I think that, that really contributed to how her life developed after the divorce. Even some of her health issues today, I think, are connected to that. So I think anger and contempt are very destructive. It's not hard for me personally to believe when Jesus says that anger is a problem, contempt is a problem. It's not just the physical harm, that there's psychological harm, there's emotional harm that happens, comes out of anger, comes out of perceiving somebody as less than you. Somebody should just go along with you and agree with you and not contradict you. This makes a lot of sense to me. I think anger and contempt are murderous things. But that's my story, okay? And I'm sure some of you have similar stories and worse. But what about our common experience of this last year? I think 2020 has proven, has proven decidedly, and it's hard to argue, that Jesus is right to connect murder, anger, and contempt. We saw anger turn violent many times this past year, even as recently as last week in Washington. Anger that was festering for months and sometimes years has exploded in murder time and time again. Hearts burning with anger became city blocks on fire. Rallies and protests sustained by angry rhetoric turned into violent mobs. And does anyone question that underneath this violent anger is deep contempt for the opposition? They may not have used names like Raka or Fool, but they treated others as nothing, nobody, undeserving of even listening to. We're not even going to talk to our opposition. As those whose destruction would immediately make things better. It's the same thing Jesus is talking about. This culture of outrage inevitably results in destruction and violence. There's no other way it can happen. It can take time. It doesn't mean the greatest degrees of violence, but it always leads there because this is how it works. We work from inside out. If you have anger and contempt in your heart, it's going to come out. And maybe in a passive-aggressive kind of destructive behavior like my dad, 
Or maybe you're going to internalize it in bitterness and resentment that's going to destroy you from within. It's going to destroy somebody. It's not going to just be there. It's going to come out somehow, some way, and it's going to hurt somebody. And Jesus is telling us, be careful with that. Don't rationalize it away. Don't just say, well, I haven't broken the sixth commandment. I have not murdered anybody. Don't just say that, Jesus is saying. Consider anger. Consider contempt. How do you treat others? What do you think others are to you? Are they important enough to listen to? Are they important enough to care for? Or do you just dismiss them as they are, if they are dispensable to you? And we as Christians have to consider honestly and in humility how we have contributed to the contempt and anger that left dead bodies on our streets. We have to consider that. I am not saying everybody has contributed to that. I'm not saying every Christian. I'm not saying all people who call themselves Christians are Christians. And I'm not saying we've all contributed to the the same degree to that. But based on what Jesus is saying, we have to wrestle with that. We have to ask ourselves, we have to ask ourselves, have I spread anger? Have I treated others as raka, as dispensable and useless and dangerous fools? Have I treated others like that? Have I harbored contempt for my ideological opponents? What do I think of people who disagree with me? Ask that question. Wrestle with that. See what the Holy Spirit will reveal in your heart. Brothers and sisters, we we have to be serious about what our Lord is saying. And so look at what you said. Look at what you did. Look at what, what you justified and rationalized. Look at what you ignored. Look at what you supported. Does it match up with Jesus' words? Do you have murder in your hearts? Because that's the call. That's the kind of exceeding righteousness that Jesus demands from his followers. Even if you have a crowd of people who disagree with you and will tell you this is righteous anger, this is okay, we should feel contempt for those people. Even if you have many people who agree with you, does Jesus agree with you? That is the most important question for the Christian. What does Jesus think? What does he say? How do I live according to that? Now, already getting into the application, I'm sorry, I I wanted to hold off to Leon, but before I tell you what you need to do and what I need to do, we first have to learn what Jesus has done. It's very important. The pattern is all over the scriptures that before we start applying stuff, we have to go back and realize what Jesus has done for us. And so look at verse 22. Jesus says, but I say to you, so he quotes Exodus, and then he says, but I say to you, and he explains what it means. It's really important to hear these words as the words of Jesus. He is the ultimate lawgiver. He's the ultimate judge. And so when he says you're under judgment, he can say that. I can't say that to you, but he can. And when he says that, he's not just acting as a judge and lawgiver. He's also the crucified and risen Savior who came to die and rise for murderers. 
Now, the, the section ends on judgment. Jesus says, you're not going to get out until you, you pay the last penny of your debt. You can be thrown in prison. The guards are going to come take you. Yes, it's an illustration, but it also tells you how God feels about you. You're under the judgment of hell. And Jesus, when he says that, what does he then do with it? Can he judge you? Yes. Can he throw you into hell? Absolutely he can do that. He's the lawgiver. He's the judge. When he says you're judged, you're judged. There's nobody that can oppose that. But what does he do with this pronouncement of judgment? What do we know about Jesus? What do we know about his life? What do we know about his death, his resurrection? He didn't just come to teach. He came to save. And so Jesus said to all those who murder, to all those who are angry, all those who look down on others, and that's all of us, we're all liable to judgment, all liable to the hell of fire. But does he punish us? Does he throw us into the hell of fire? Does he let his righteous anger burn? No, he doesn't. Instead, Jesus himself absorbs God's righteous anger towards sinners in our place. The person who says, but I say to you, you are under judgment, is the person who says, I am taking your judgment upon myself. He was murdered instead of murderers. Our king is a murdered king. He's not just a lawgiver. He's not just a judge. He is that. But he's also a sacrifice, a savior, the one who gave his life for us. He came to fulfill the law which means that he did something on our behalf. He, he did something that met the requirements of the law, including the judgment, including the penalty, including the debt. He lived a perfect life. No one else lived like Jesus. Jesus can discern between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. We often can't. He can. No one else lived like him, and yet what happened to him? What happened to Jesus? He was insulted, he was abused, he was mocked, he was tortured. He was, he was treated as dispensable, unnecessary, dangerous to the society and the empire. He, he was humiliated by being treated as an insurrectionist, a rebel, a despicable pretender to the throne. Jesus was treated as a fool. Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, the one who made it all, the one who inserted himself again into this world to love us, was treated like a fool. Nailed to the cross in the scorching heat, surrounded by scoffers, and was left there until he could no longer breathe. And he died. But don't think this is a tragic accident. Poor Jesus, it happened to him. No, Jesus said, and this is John 10, 17 and 18, he said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So as, as tragic and as terrible and as horrific it was what happened to him, he agreed to that. This wasn't done against his will. He chose to do that. The judge 
the lawgiver, the king, chose to be murdered for us. He chose to be treated that way. He didn't have to do that. He could have stopped it, but he chose to remain on that cross. He chose to be tried by human corrupt court, and he accepted the sentence. It was Jesus' choice to take on himself the full weight of not just human anger and contempt, but God's anger. God's anger against all of us, rockers and fools and murderers. Jesus was murdered to give us life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing on this passage, says, Jesus went to reconcile with his brothers, and he offered himself as a sacrifice on the altar. He went to pay the last penny of our debt to God so we can be let out of prison. And after Jesus was destroyed by God's anger in our place, he came out of the tomb with the offer of a new life and a new kingdom, kingdom without murder. And because of our murdered king, we can be forgiven our debts and our guilt can be taken away. And Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to cleanse our murderous hearts, not just to prevent us from murdering other people, but prevent us from anger and contempt that is so deep in our bones. The Spirit cleanses us from that. So how can we change? How can we fully live now in this kingdom without murder, in this kingdom of a murdered king? If Christ's death and resurrection have accomplished all that I said they accomplished, all the scripture says they accomplished, how can we apply it to our lives now? How can we live in a kingdom without murder? Quickly, three application points. One, receive the gospel of his grace. Receive the gospel of his grace. Accept by faith, embrace, come to an agreement with Jesus, with what he's done. Christ's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, which means it's a kingdom of grace. Our earthly kingdoms operate based on anger and contempt and power struggles. But Jesus says, my kingdom is a kingdom of grace. It's a gift. It's upside down. It's not like the world thinks. It's like I think. Jesus offers this gift to you. He didn't die for you because you were slightly better than other murderers. He died for you because you were as bad as you can be. And he died for you. It's grace, right? We, we say grace in church because that's the, the, the key idea of Christianity. That Jesus does all this for us, sinners who don't deserve it. But he does it anyway because he loves us. That's the gospel. That's the good news that Jesus came to do that for us on our behalf, in our place, to save us. The judge being judged so he can free us from our punishment. And so the question for us is, have you accepted that gift? Are you in the kingdom of grace? All that Jesus did for you, he did for you by grace, not because you deserve it. It's a gift to be received. Have you received it? Have you come to Jesus in humility and just simply accepted what he's done for you? Listen to James 1, 19 and following verses. Notice the change. Notice how change happens. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. These are good words for us. It's, it's a, I think James is actually commenting on the Sermon on the Mount, expanding on what Jesus was saying. 
He says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If you're an angry person, you are not right with God. Therefore, he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. He says, put it away. Don't do that. Don't be angry anymore. Put that away. Change. But how do you change? By receiving the implanted word. What does that mean? That's the message of the gospel. That's the proclamation that Jesus has done all of that for you. But it's not just a piece of news. It's not just a piece of information. It has to come into your heart. So when I say, come to Jesus, when I say, accept the gift, when I say, embrace him by faith, I mean, open your heart to him. Let his word be implanted, put into you, so that it changes you from within. Have you received this gift of Jesus? Do you really belong in his kingdom? Not by the way you act, not by the way you feel, but by the way of your relationship with Jesus. Are you related to him by faith? Is he your king? Now secondly, as you receive this gospel of grace, secondly, we repent of our anger, contempt, violence, and murder. We must repent. Christ's kingdom is an inside-out kingdom, and so that implanted word that you receive, it needs to work itself out. His gospel is a word that changes you from within. So we need to work it out in repentance. If grace is real, let me make some connections real quick. If grace is real, if Jesus really did all of this for us and we don't deserve it, he just did it for us because he loves us, if grace is real, how can I call in someone's debt? You see? If my cosmic debt before God was just forgiven, it's gone, how can I see someone else as a debtor to me? It makes no sense, but that's because the implanted word is working itself out. And so you start repenting. And you start saying, I can't do that. That doesn't make any sense. It's not in line with the truth of the gospel. I can't live like that. And you repent. If grace is real, how can somebody who has experienced his grace can have contempt for anybody else? Do you know that it's impossible to do that? If God had to save you, through the murder of his son. Why do you think you are more special than anybody else? Why do you think that somehow somebody else is less significant than you are? Or someone else's existence is dispensable? How can you think that? We're the same, all in need of grace. And finally, thirdly, reconcile with others. Receive the gospel of grace, repent of your anger, contempt, violence, and murder, and finally, reconcile with others. Christ's kingdom is an already not yet kingdom, which means that we live in tension and conflict with others until he returns. This is why, as, as, as Mark prayed earlier, we are called to live peaceably with others as far as it's possible, as much as it depends on us, as, as, as much as we can make it happen. Yes, we're called to live in peace, but knowing that not every relationship is going to result in peace. But let it be not because of us. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, yes, the fuller kingdom is still coming where there'll be complete peace. And man, do we long for that. But until then, you strive for peace. You don't rationalize your, your uh, conflicts away. You don't harbor anger. You don't look at others with contempt. He says, you work for peace. 
Look at what he says. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I mean, there's urgency here. Jesus says, when you're doing the most important thing in the world, which is worship, when you bring in your offering to God in the temple, that's the most important thing an Israelite could do with his life. He says, there's something that's even more important than that, and that is reconciling with your brother. So in that moment, you come with your gift, and in that moment, when you, you remember, the Holy Spirit convicts you, and he says, yeah, but you've been angry at that person, and you're at odds with that person. You've been holding a grudge towards that person. Jesus says, drop the gift and go reconcile with your brother. Go do that. If you need to get up now, you should go do that. That's how important Jesus thinks it is. If there's somebody in your life that you need to be reconciled with, that you can reconcile with, it's within your power. You can do that. You can humble yourself. You can say you're sorry. You can figure out what happened. You can initiate that reconciliation. Jesus says, do it right now. Go do it. Don't put it off. Do it for Jesus' sake and in his power. He's not just talking about brothers. First, he's talking about brothers, those who are close to us, probably believers. So take that as the first thing, first level. But then he's talking about an accuser. Just come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be put in prison. He's saying even if somebody is accusing you, they're dragging you to court. There's really no indication that you are at fault here. But something is happening. There's strife, some kind of conflict, and it's escalating. Jesus says, stop it. If you can de-escalate it, if you can help the situation right now so it doesn't get to court, it doesn't get to prison, it doesn't get to violence, it doesn't get to murder, he says, do it. If it takes humbling yourself, that's okay. Because that's the kind of kingdom that he has. These are practical things that I want you to think about, I want you to consider doing it today. If you're not a Christian, receive his gospel. Receive Jesus. If you are harboring anger, contempt, violence, murder in your heart, you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit today, repent. Repent of it. And if you are at odds with someone in the church, out of the church, if you can reconcile with them, go and do that. We are in the kingdom of King Jesus. What he says goes. What he says is right is right. We are responsible and accountable to him. So when he says for us to do that, we have to do it. We have to apply it carefully, and we have to do what he wants us to do. So live like you really are in the kingdom. Live consistently with what your king is commanding you to do.